Good morning, church. You can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 34. If you're using one of these uh, black pew Bibles, I'll tell you the page number once I find it. Page number is 488, 488 in one of these black chair Bibles that you'll find near you. Now, I would venture to guess, bold claim here, I think I'd venture to guess that I'm the only person in the room who has traveled to the country of Syria. Uh, Syria, I got to go there a couple of times before 2011. So in 2011, war broke out there that has continued to the present day. And so that's given me an interest in the war, following it a little bit with a sad uh, interest. And I've watched as this complicated war develops, right? You've got the regime forces, you've got a few different rebel group forces coalescing against the regime. You had ISIS really active in Syria for quite a while. You still have different Islamist groups. And even through the 2010s, as you followed this war, you had all of those competing factors, but you would also have times when there would be vast swaths of the country that you couldn't really tell who had control of those whole areas. Uh, what had happened was that the country had descended into what can be called warlordism, where you have different little warlords who uh, can amass to themselves enough arms and money to get a small army who are kind of like their small army, and they kind of compete with the other warlords in the area, and that becomes the de facto political situation uh, in a failed state kind of situation like this. Now, it's such a crazy thing to think about what it would be like. So scary to think about living under a failed state situation like that where, it, where it's warlords competing. And if you think about it, what would it be like to live in that scenario? Well, you would necessarily have to uh, ally yourself with one of these warlords because you were purchasing his protection by giving him your fighting or whatever. And you would want to be connected to the warlord who's going to win. Because if you connect to a, 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 the warlord who loses, you're probably going to die. And so you would have this relationship with this warlord that is like you're terrified of him. But in fact, the reason why you're terrified of him is the reasons why you kind of want to be near him too, right? Because he's the most powerful. He's the most, uh, the strongest. It's a strange kind of situation. Now, God is not like a warlord, <laughs> thankfully. I, I, I'm reticent to use this illustration, right? Just because I want to make that very clear. God is not like a warlord, but God is powerful. Far more powerful than any power of the world. And so the way in which fear works, there is a, there's a bit of an analogy here for how we are to fear God. Because fear of God, rightly understood, doesn't push us away from him, but it draws us toward him. When we understand the extent of God's power, we realize that resistance is futile. And our only hope is to come under him for our refuge. In today's psalm, David teaches from his experience of this very dynamic. 
So let's look at this together. Listen as I read God's word, Psalm 34. Concerning David, when he pretended to be insane in the presence of Abimelech, who drove him out, and he departed. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and rescued me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. You who are his holy ones, fear the Lord. For those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry. But those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is someone who desires life, loving a long life to enjoy what is good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry for help. The face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil to remove all memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. One who is righteous has many adversities, but the Lord rescues him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil brings death to the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be punished. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, and all who take refuge in him will not be punished. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. The main point of this psalm, I'll boil down into a sentence, is this. Go to God as your refuge because you fear him. Go to God as your refuge because you fear him. And we'll look at this in two halves, verses 1 through 7, the first half of the psalm under the heading of David's fear, and then the second half of the psalm, verses 8 through 22. So first, David's fear. We have to understand in this psalm, the superscript. You notice I read that at the beginning, the italics portion at the top of the psalm. It's different than the, the bold part, the Lord delivers the righteous in the CSB. So those bold parts at the top of the psalm is, is put in by the translators. That's not anything special. But the superscript that oftentimes just says of David or of somebody else, Sometimes like this, it gives us a little bit of context. These are actually ancient. They are probably either, either written by David himself in this case, or they're put there by the editor of the book of Psalms who put the Psalms in this order. And so they're there for a purpose. So we take them as Holy Spirit inspired. 
And in this instance, we get a lot. We get the whole context of this psalm. It's referring back to an incident in David's life that we studied in our first Samuel series in first Samuel 21. So if you remember, what was happening there is that David was the righteous outlaw suffering from the despotic and paranoid King Saul. And Saul was pursuing David, and David fled away from Saul to Philistine territory. But once he was in the Philistine territory, the king of the Philistines heard the song that had been going around, the the hit of the day of Saul has killed his thousands, David has killed his ten thousands. We don't know if that's the original tune, but that's the tune. (laughs) But that's the tune that my kids came up with through our first Samuel series and sang incessantly through all that time, Uh, which really highlights the weirdness of that song being the song that everybody was singing. But uh, nonetheless, that's what was happening. So the king hears that song and says, wait a minute, I don't want this guy around. Uh, And so David has the brilliant strategy of acting crazy. He starts acting like a madman. He lets his spit run down his beard. And the king says, don't I have enough madmen of my own that uh, we don't need to import the Israelite madmen? Get out of here, David. And so David escapes and uh, returns to Israel, uh, survives to fight another day. It's a strange story, uh, one in which David was in a lot of danger, and the Lord, through strange means, uh, rescued David. Now, as a parenthesis, some of you are bugged by this. In, in, the, in here, in Psalm, it says Abimelech was the name of the king. But if you flip to 1 Samuel 21, it says Achish was the king. So what do we do with that? Well, there's two explanations. One is boring, and one is more interesting. The, the boring one is that Abimelech was the kind of generic term in Israel for kings of the Philistines. Generic term, such so as sort of King of the Philistines, all kind of called Abimelech. And that's because in Genesis 20, the first kind of king of the Philistines was, was named Abimelech. That's kind of the boring reason, probably true. Uh, the more interesting reason, I'll leave for you to like kind of ponder or look up yourself. Read Genesis 20, read Genesis 26, and then read 1 Samuel 21. And I wonder if the, the writer of the, the superscript <clears throat> was seeing a parallel between those three chapters and drawing some uh, theological conclusions of ways in which the, the characters in those stories all acted similarly. All right, that's my tease. Go, go figure that out if you want, or don't worry about it because it's not that important. Uh, <clears throat> but the context of the psalm is important because when David turns to uh, say, I will bless the Lord at all times, his praise will always be on my lips. That is not a cheap thing for him to say. When I will praise the Lord at all times is on my lips uh, is like the, the caption under the, under the, the, the post of like the, the latte with the open Bible on the beautiful Sunday, sunny morning. Like, oh, it's kind of cheap, right? It doesn't, it doesn't have much gravitas. But in this instance for David, him saying this is a hard fought kind of thing. This is a uh, a, ta- a faith that has been tested and, has, and God has proven faithful to David. This is a suffering saint 
saying, hey, God is still good. God is still worth it. And then he turns and he invites his readers to join in praising God because of God's faithfulness. He says, I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt his name together. So this is meaningful in understanding David's context as a suffering saint of him saying, hey, let's exalt the name of the Lord together. Friends, I know that we can take courage from this, from David. We can take courage from other suffering saints in Scripture who God has proved faithful to. We look at those stories and we are encouraged. We can take courage from suffering saints in church history who have attested to God's faithfulness to them through lives of great suffering. And we can look around the room, around our church, fellow members who are suffering, who have suffered, and they're still here singing, Behold our God, seated on his throne, come let us adore him. What an encouragement that is to our hearts, that as a community, we uphold these truths together and invite one another to continue to worship our faithful king, even amidst great suffering. So take courage from one another, even as we take courage from David. So David begins this psalm with this invitation to worship, and he's going to proceed in in verses 4 through 7 with a testimony, a testimony of God's faithfulness to him. So he kind of explains the situation in verses 4 and 6. So 4, he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and rescued me from all my fears. And then in verse 6, he says, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. So David is saying, hey, I prayed, the Lord answered, he saved me, he was good to me. This is my story. Praise God for that, right? And so the question then for the reader is, how is God going to treat me? Will he treat me similarly? And David answers that question by pulling two Old Testament references. First in verse 5, he says, those who look to God are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. So what happens when you look at God? Well, Moses spent 40 days uh, up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments. And when he came down from the mountain, it says he didn't realize that the skin of his face shone as a result of him speaking with the Lord. In fact, he ended up putting a veil on his face to talk to Israel because he was shining so much. God is so glorious that after speaking with God, Moses' face shone with that glory. Just looking at him made Moses radiate glory. So I think David is referring to that or or referencing that or, 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 or playing on that theme to say, those who look to God radiate joy. You see, God is so full of glory, full of Uh, joy that when we gaze on the face of God, our faces are raised with joy. So church, I hope you treasure this kind of joy, the joy that supersedes circumstances, the joy that rests on our faces, the glory that comes from God that bounces off of us and radiates to others. That joy is beautiful and it's important. 
So that's the first Old Testament image. And then verse 7, we see a second Old Testament image. The angel encamps, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. So David is thinking, I think, of another Old Testament event. When Israel was fleeing from the Egyptian army, the glory of the Lord was leading the way with the, the, the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. And then it actually moved around. God moved around to the back of the army to stand in between Israel and their enemies. The angel encamps around those who fear him, and he rescues them. So David's testimony, his story of God's faithfulness amounts to this. God rescued me from my fears, and he will rescue all who fear him. Now, there's something a little bit odd about that when you actually stop and think about that sentence. He rescued me from my fears, and he rescues all who fear him. The fears that of Saul and of the Philistines that David had that are real aspect of his life, those were overpowered, in a sense, by a greater fear, a fear of God. You know, when I think about my actions in any given situation, I can uh, consider my motives, and my motives can be boiled down to kind of two buckets sometimes. So I can boil down my motives to two buckets, my motive being fear of God or my motive being fear of man. So fear of God is this massive biblical theme that undergirds our faith, undergirds our relationship to God at a fundamental level. And fear of man is the inverse of that or the, the, the absence of that, the absence of Fear of God is going to then be fear of man in some way or another. Now, fear of man takes a million different forms. It can look like a cowering, people-pleasing, doormat-like sucking up to everyone, motivated by a need for others' approval or affection. Fear of man can look like ruthless, striving for success, motivated by the need for approval of someone in particular or it can look like a total abdication of leadership, motivated by the discomfort in the risk of someone not liking the leadership that is given. Fear of man looks like so many different things. We saw that dynamic a lot in the character of Saul. Just think about Saul if you really want to study the, the fear of man, remember what that looks like. And the solution to fear of man is not simply a removal of the fear I mean, a lot of people try this, right? Just stop worrying about what other people think of you. You're great. You, you know, think better of yourself and, and don't regard their opinions as something that matters. I mean, you can try that. Like, we can all try that. But it doesn't quite satisfy, does it? It doesn't quite do it to, to actually remove the concern that we have of what other people are going to think of us because what we actually need is a deeper fear. You need a, a deeper fear that, overpowers and relativizes the fear of man? Of course, the answer is you need fear of God. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs tells us. When you're chiefly concerned about what God says about you, what God thinks of you, what God does with you, that's when you can start to live wisely. I'm no longer controlled by what you think of me because I'm secure in what God thinks of me. Your Fear of man is so relativized as to go away. In fact, uh, there's a pastor, Mark 
Dever, he said this. He said, when you fear God rightly, there is nothing left to fear. When you fear God rightly, there is nothing left to fear. Look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Right? When you fear God rightly, there is nothing left to fear. More teaching on fear of God to come in the rest of this psalm, because David's now going to move from sort of his testimony portion of the psalm to now a wisdom section of the psalm. So part two, a fear that draws near. Look at verse 8 with me. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. You who are holy, his holy ones, fear the Lord. For those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry. But those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Taste and see. Uh, Have you ever introduced a child to ice cream. You probably sat down and said, listen, children, ice cream is made from high-quality dairy with a lot of fat content included, formed into a custard using egg yolks and sugar, and then churned while in a frozen environment to create a nice creamy cold texture. Combined with other flavors, this has made ice cream in the upper echelon of the world's desserts. No, you didn't do that, you dummy. You said, try it, you'll like it. (laughs) And they did, and they loved it. You got to see that moment of realization, of dawning, of, oh, ice cream is amazing, right? The goodness of ice cream is self-evidence to anyone willing to taste and see. It's just objectively good, and then it communicates its goodness to us while we taste it. God is like that. Taste and see that God is good. When you do, his goodness will be self-evident. There's an 18th century pastor named John Gill. He said this about this verse. He says, God is essentially, infinitely, perfectly, immutably, and solely good in himself. And he is communicatively and diffusively good to others. Lots of big words, I know. This is what he's saying. God is always and forever in himself totally good. He just is. That objective goodness of God is then communicated and diffused to us when we taste him. So he is indeed good, and he indeed shows his goodness to us. How happy are we? How blessed are we? when we taste and see that God is good. How happy are we when we get to eat the ice cream? You know, it says, how happy is the person who takes refuge in him? In other words, another translation, blessed is the man who takes refuge in God. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Same word as blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked from Psalm 1. Same word, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, Psalm 32. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That was in Psalm 33, verse 8. That we, didn't, we didn't preach through that psalm, but that's building here. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And then now, blessed is the man who takes refuge in God. You know, I hope that you long for a blessed life. 
the happiness, joy, blessing, your source of that blessing is God. You desire, your desire for blessing is not a problem. The problem comes when we seek that blessing in something other than God. So the solution is not some sort of stoicism where we uh, desire less. Now, the problem is we got to go to God with that longing. So how do you take refuge in God? How do you taste and see that God is good? Well, let me put this in two ways. One, get your theology right. And two, get your practice right, your actions right. So theology right, tasting and seeing that God is good means knowing him rightly. Your theology of who God is needs to be sound in order to taste him as he actually is. Whatever counterfeit version of God that is in your head is not as good as God actually is. So the Christian life is one of constantly getting to know God better in objective ways through objective truth that's revealed in Scripture. So study God, study Scripture. Study good books that will help you understand Scripture better. Come to church ready to learn better and hear more who God is. If this isn't your normal church, go to a church that preaches the Bible, that you can follow. Hey, the point of the sermon is the point of the text. They're telling me what the Bible is saying is true about God. Engage in the other teaching avenues that we have at church to learn better who God is. That's all part of tasting and seeing that God is good. So get your theology right. Always seeking to improve our understanding of God. And then get your actions right. This is largely just pulling from last week's sermon, right? Nothing destroys your enjoyment of God like unconfessed sin. And yet, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. Walking around with unconfessed sin is not worth it. And yet, walking around with uh, confessed sin, with the transgressions forgiven, tasting and seeing that God is good is a joyful, wonderful thing. So be diligent in engaging in the normal means of grace that God has given us to taste and see his goodness. So taste and see God's goodness in church. Taste and see God's goodness in your relationship with other church members. Taste and see God's goodness in your reading of the Bible and in your praying. So take the time to taste and see that God is good. Now, we still have a head scratcher (laughs) of trying to pull together these two themes that are developing in this psalm of taste and see that God is good, joy, refuge in him, and fear of God. David keeps bringing up fear of God. Look at verse 11. That's where he's going next. Come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Come, children, listen to me. There's my Father's Day tie-in. Happy Father's Day. Um, That's all I got. Sorry. You wanted more, I know. (laughs) I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So this is the first lesson of fear of the Lord that he's saying. Uh, And what I'm expecting in these next verses, I'll teach you the first lesson of fear of the Lord. I'm expecting God is so powerful, you're so not powerful, so fear him. That's where I would go if I was David writing the psalm. Let's see what he does. Who is someone, verse 12, who is someone who desires life, loving a long life to enjoy what is good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil and do what is good. 
Seek peace and pursue it. It's interesting, right? He, he's actually starting with application. He's starting with what is it like to live in fear of the Lord? It's not just an intellectual understanding, an idea to grasp, but an action. Fearing the Lord means keeping your tongue from evil, keeping your lips from deceitful speech, turning away from evil, doing good, seeking and pursuing peace. You want to learn the first lesson of fear in the Lord, start obeying. Start living like you fear in him. Two reasons for this being lesson one in fear of the Lord is one, first, fearing the Lord is obeying the Lord. There is such important theology in being a Christian, such important things that you need to believe in order to be a Christian, but don't think that you can just be a believing Christian and not a doing Christian. Belief without actions is not real belief. Faith without works is dead. You can't fear the Lord and disregard what he's telling you to do. So fear the Lord and start obeying him. Second reason why he's doing this is as you seek to obey, you will know your shortcomings. God, who you fear, is telling you to keep your tongue from evil. God, who you fear, is telling you to turn away from evil and do what is good. Obey. But as you fail to obey, you will grow in your fear of the Lord. One aspect of fear of the Lord is knowing that he is holy and you are not. And that brings us to the last two stanzas of the psalm, which highlight for us a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. This is going to be for 15 through 22. And, and in verses 16 and 21 is where he talks about the wicked. So let's think about those verses first. Verse 16, the face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil to remove all memory of them from the earth. Remember verse 5, those who look to God are radiant with joy. Their faces are never ashamed. And now, verse 16, the face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil. Think of the, the, the inverse of Moses coming down from the mountain, his face radiating. And then compare that to God's face being set against those who do what is evil. So what if God's face is set against you? Well, then he will remove even the memory of you from the earth. Now, that might sound dramatic, but we have to remember the reality of death. It's a fact in our world that death exists, and we like to ignore that reality, but it's true. And then the question, I mean, how many of you know your grandparents' names? Probably most of you. How many of you know your great-grandparents' names? How about your great-great-grandparents? At what point in your family lineage is the memory of even your very ancestors wiped away from the face of the earth? Two generations, three generations, four generations? What's going to happen to you? Will God wipe away memory of you from the face of the earth. If God is not with you and he's against you, he will wipe away that memory. So yes, you should fear him. You should be afraid of not being at peace with God. Now let's look at verse 21. Evil brings death to the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be punished. 
Now, the way he's talking in this verse, it's almost like evil is personified. Poetically, like evil is this person or entity that brings death to the wicked, to those who set themselves up against God. Evil pursues them to death. Remember Psalm 23 when David, he, he, he does a similar thing poetically. He personifies goodness. He says, surely goodness will follow me all the days of my life. This is like the, the opposite of that. Surely evil will bring death to the wicked. Those who hate the righteous will be punished. Fundamentally, what this means is, do you fear and love and to submit to Jesus, or do you hate him? You see, Jesus is not just a personification of goodness in some poetic sense. He's the incarnation of goodness in a literal God become man sense. Jesus is fully 100% the righteous man. And at the end of the day, at the end of your life, the question is, what did you do with Jesus? Did you turn to him as your refuge, or did you hate him? Is Jesus your Lord, or is he your enemy? When you die, will you face God's punishment for your sin? If you hate Jesus, you will spend eternity receiving the punishment of God's wrath. I'm praying that you hear me, that there's some fear of God, that God's word is working in you this morning. Some fear of hell, some fear of God's wrath, some fear of him. Because when there's that beginning of fear of God in you, then there's hope. Because that fear of God drives you to realize I have no hope from escaping this unless it's in God. Let that fear of God drive you not away from him, but towards him. In him, you have a rock solid hope because all who take refuge in him will not be punished. God is like a foreboding mountain, foreboding formidable, terrifying, beautiful, yet unavoidable, and you cannot defeat this mountain. But there's a tunnel through the mountain, a way made for you by Jesus, and he is inviting you through. So don't turn away from the unavoidable mountain, but walk towards the unavoidable mountain. Let God be your refuge. In that way, you become a righteous person. We can look at the rest of these verses on the righteous person. He, we, can, we can look at it in two ways. We can consider the attitudes and actions of the righteous. That will help us understand how do we become righteous. And then we can look at God's response, God's actions towards the righteous. So first, the attitudes and actions of the righteous. Look at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and he, his ears are open to their cry for help. So what's, what do the, act, the righteous do? The righteous cry to God for help. Verse 17, the righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and rescues them 
from all their troubles. So the righteous are those who are in troubles and they cry out to God. 18, the Lord is near the brokenhearted and he saves those crushed in spirit. So righteous people are brokenhearted and they're crushed in spirit. Verse 19, the one who is righteous has many adversities, but the Lord rescues him from them all. The righteous is the one who has many adversities and looking for rescue in God. And then verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants and all who take refuge in him will not be punished. God's servants. The righteous are God's servants. The, the, the righteous are those who take refuge in him. Looking at that list of descriptors of the righteous, those who cry out, those who are crushed in spirit, those who have the adversities, those who are God's servants and take refuge in him, the biggest threat to you being a righteous person is your pride. Pride is the only thing that, the difference between somebody who is righteous and somebody who is not is pride versus humility. So church, beware of pride growing in your heart. Fearing God crushes your pride. Because when you look up at him, you see his righteousness and his power, and you are no longer overtaken by your self-righteousness or your attempts at power. So humble yourselves before the mighty God, and he will exalt you. Seek your refuge in God. Humble yourself enough to do that, and he will lift you up. Which is important because look at verse 20. It's an odd verse in here. He protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Now, at this point in the writing of the Bible, what David knows about unbroken bones is that that is what the, the Passover lamb, instructions around the Passover lamb were, were, were defined as. Hey, when Israel was to uh, slay the Passover lamb and put the blood on the door Host, so that the angel of death would pass over that house and not take the firstborn son as an atonement for the sins of that household. Instead, let the blood of that lamb pay the penalty for that house. That lamb's bones must not be broken. Now David is saying here, the righteous one, not one of his bones will be broken. And then in John 17, John pulls this together and says, Jesus was the perfect Sacrificial Passover lamb whose bones were not broken. And so as Jesus died on the cross and his blood was spilled, that blood can wash you clean from your sins. And if you are in Christ, that blood has washed you clean for your sins. And as Jesus rose from the dead, you will rise from the dead, not to death, but to life, eternal life with God, peace with him. And so as we look through these verses one last time and see the Lord's actions to the righteous, for those of you who in, are in Christ, what this is saying is the Lord's actions towards you. This is God's heart towards you. Listen as you hear God's heart towards you. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry for help. 
The eyes of the Lord are on you, and his ears are open to your cries for help. The righteous cry out, you cry out, and the Lord hears you and rescues you from all your troubles. The Lord is near to you when you are brokenhearted. He saves you when you are crushed in spirit. The one who is righteous has many adversities. We know that you have many adversities, but the Lord rescues you from them all. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, and all who take refuge in him will not be punished. Church, we have a rock-solid hope. Amen. Let's take a moment of silence to ponder this passage before we take the Lord's Supper.